Hey everybody, and welcome to Scary and Sam. We're your hosts, Sam and James. How is everyone's Halloween celebrations going? Have you put up decorations on the front lawn yet? Carved out a jack-o'-lantern? Binged on sweets and candy until you was violently sick? Excellent, anyway. <laughs> I'm giving Sam a break from ghosts this week for something more tame. A homicidal masked madman. We're heading to Haddonfield, Illinois. For the first part of our Halloween retrospective. I think we should do the plot, everyone, yes? Excellent. At the age of six, Michael Myers murders his older sister on Halloween night. Fifteen years later, he escapes from a mental institute and returns to the small town of Haddonfield, Illinois, hell-bent to murder again, with his doctor, Sam Loomis, in hot pursuit. After picking off a group of friends, so survivor Laurie Strode must fend off Michael and protect the children she's babysitting, until Loomis shoots Michael, only for his body to vanish. The end. So, Sam, what did you think? I actually quite enjoyed this one. Um, it didn't scare me, but I did actually... Yeah, I, I felt like it was like a realistic kind of representation of how something like this could actually happen. And that's quite scary in a way. I had like one one thing that made me jump because I just wasn't expecting it. There was a bit um, where there was something smashed into a glass, didn't it? And that, that made me jump. <laughs> Some old guttering. Yeah, yeah, that was the bit. And, yeah, I really liked that Jamie Lee Curtis's character becomes the realistic final girl as well. Um, she's scared, but we would all be <laughs> in her situation, I think. And um, then she acted out with adrenaline and fear um, to do whatever she could um, to get out and to get away from um, Michael Myers. Um, compared to her friends who just didn't, they were unable to do anything. Well, they're preoccupied with drugs and underage sex. Yes, they were focusing on that, weren't they? Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah, there was there was actually a bit where um, Myers comes out of the cupboard and that's when like they come face to face with each other. That made me jump a little bit because... And with the little synth... Um, sting there. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I found it really weird that Myers just stares at when when he's when he's stabbed Bob. He's just staring at Bob's body like. Well, what that, are they that's what makes Miles sta- Michael stand out from all the other mask killers. He likes to admire his work before he moves on. Yeah. He's quite creative. Mm. And that there was several moments in the film where I'm I was saying why is the back door open like <laughs> who in their right mind would leave a door unlocked a, a window open like do they not know that they're in a horror film <laughs> well I guess small town suburbia in the late 70s in America maybe they still left their doors unlocked but let's do a couple of facts before we dive in the script was written in less than two weeks the movie was filmed in 20 days, and it was scored in three days. So John Carpenter and Deborah Hill are the envy of most movie makers. Mm, I bet they are. Yeah, I also think that this film's got a really iconic soundtrack um, and theme. Like Everyone knows 
that the theme is from Halloween, even if you haven't seen it, you know. And this film has been chosen by the Library of Congress for a preservation in the US National Film Registry as being culturally, historically and aesthetically significant. Mm. And I guess because Halloween features many of the genre tropes that became customary in the 80s, perhaps in response to the puritanical values of Reagan's America, a mass killer who targets teenagers who partake in underage drinking and shagging, something the final girl abstains from before confronting and surviving the ordeal Mm. of this mass killer. Before Halloween, we had Psycho. Even Black Christmas is considered the true originator of the slasher genre. Audiences have already experienced seeing through the eyes of the killer before, and Carpenter uses this motif to surpass our expectations. In the opening sequence, it's masterfully revealed that the killer we've been forced to witness brutally knife a young woman to death is none other than a dead-eyed six-year-old child. Yeah, I didn't realise that it started out with um, Michael Myers as a kid stabbing his sister to death. That was really... Like, I was expecting it to be a teenager. Like, <laughs> it was quite shocking. And then the mask comes off and it's this little kid. That's the great thing, because unlike most of us heads, Sam doesn't know this classic opening to no. Halloween. No, I didn't. But from this point on, the audience is left on edge, wondering what else the film will unexpectedly throw away. Mm. Studies have shown that children who display heartless and unemotional traits are more likely to become criminals or possess aggressive, psychopathic behaviour as adults. And despite psychopaths being few and far between, studies suggest that they commit half of the all violent crimes. Okay. Although... Allegedly, most surgeons and all these top-tier jobs, like stockbrokers that, tend to be psychopaths as well. Because they're more inclined to take risks. Mm. Psychopathy is usually the result of either nurture or nature. And we're led to believe that Michael had a normal upbringing. Because he grew up in a nice house on a nice street, in a nice suburban town. Maybe his mum didn't hug him enough. Maybe his uncle hugged him too much. We don't know. (laughs) And that's what terrifies us about Michael Myers. It's never explained why he kills. Mm. We're never given insight into his motivations. He was just born bad. As Loomis says, do you want to hear my Donald Pleasance impression? Go on then. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. (laughs) Yeah? (laughs) And then he goes on to say, this is not a man. (laughs) (laughs) You failed as a doctor, Lewis. (laughs) For he just had a compulsion to kill. And what first triggered him was his older sister playing a game of hide the sausage. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I could have phrased that about. (laughs) I would like to discuss the phallic nature of Michael's knife. What? What do you mean? Something phallic. Resembles a hard-on. What's that got to do with his knife? Okay, hear me out. (laughs) Michael was placed in an asylum as a child. He has never had a normal upbringing. So when he escapes as a fully grown, warm-blooded man, the first time he lays eyes on a young woman, his first instinct is to stab her. But he's backed up after all these years. So one woman isn't enough. He's like a sailor on shore leave. (laughs) No? 
Uh, yeah, I can kind of see. Being about it, the first time he kills, he witnesses his sister have sex. Mm. And I guess unsatisfying because that guy finished within 30 seconds. Yeah, so he's linked it with the knife, with the stabbing. I guess so. Even though you're not going to have, like, any sexual inclination, inclination? When you're six years old. Mm. But he was institutionalised from that point on. Literally, puberty hit him while he was in asylum. Mm. He's never laid eyes on, I guess, a young woman before. And second he's out... He's stalking teenage girls again. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, Me neither. (laughs) Now, where do you think Michael learned to drive? I mean, that's the biggest mystery. He's just come out of the asylum and magically knows how to drive. Like, not even with, like, swerving all over the road or anything. Like, He knows how to drive better than I do. (laughs) In time, James. Do you think Loomis took him out as day, on day trips to teach him? Like, no, Michael. Avoid the people on the path. Michael! Setting him up for... Well, maybe maybe that's why Dr. Loomis is then um, not really kind of looking for him. Yeah. Not really. Well, while, while he was still attempting to treat him, he taught him about, he tried to teach him how to drive and often yeah. he tried to not mow people down. He was like, mm, yeah, maybe. There's no saving this guy. <laughs> so there's no saving this guy, but... Let's let's go on to the final girl who does save the day in the end. Um, so I I really enjoyed Laurie's character actually um, being a realistic kind of character in the end. Um, she's also she's not shown like in a sexual nature like her two friends are. <laughs> totally. Um, do we do we see a lot of that with final girls in general? Um, then they're not that they're not shown sexually, like other characters in the films. Yes, in the eighties, they're usually more prudish than the other characters. That mm. does become a cliche, and it, it does get a bit more meta in the nineties. And I think now in the present, they're more portrayed three dimensionally. Mm. But but they have to they have to be everything nowadays. Yeah, they have to be everything now. So they have to be attractive and have to be able to kick ass and. <laughs> Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, some of them it just doesn't work because you they are too attractive, and you there's it's like it's like the whole um, God, what's that film with Freddie Prince Jr. She's all that mm-hmm. when it's supposed to be the geek, but you can tell underneath all the glasses and the bad haircut that this girl is absolutely stunning. So right. they're trying to get this actress and dress her down, yeah. and she's supposed to be like. The girl next door, she's supposed to be plain and meek and not attractive like her friends, but not convinced because of the actress they've cast mm. in this role. But some films pull it off, some don't. Mm. But this this film, I think it's really been pulled off really well. Jamie Lee Curtis, is, she does a really good job on this one, I think. Um, and she's like, what, she's not 19? Is it 19 when she played this? Yeah, when she was um, cast in this role, she was 19. Yeah. But she is the quintessential final girl. This film solidified her as the stable where all the other final girls that came after had to compare to her. Mm. She's literally just put up on a pedestal. But (laughs) with, with with all those points, why doesn't she turn on the bloody lights? When? She's walking through the house. She doesn't turn 
any lights on. I'm just waiting for Michael Myers to just pop out. <laughs> because I like all of these other films, none of these characters know they're in a horror film. But they should know. She stabs him in one point and she doesn't even check him. Well, like with the, um, do you remember with the um, knitting needle? She stabs him in the neck. <laughs> and then she's like, oh, okay, that's over. She's sitting on the sofa, then gets up, and then he rises up in the background. <laughs> Michael stacked it when that knitting needle went in his neck. He went down hard. Yeah, he did, didn't he? Oh, cool, yeah. But this is before characters realised they had to double tap. You had to shoot the um, murderer twice and know he was down. Mm. Jamie Lee Curtis portrays Laurie Strode with an air of innocence, but not naivety. She's aware of what her friends are getting up to, but she may be the girl next door, but she's still smoking weed with Annie. <laughs> yeah, so an- another another one of the points that... Um, this isn't really a final girl point, but the women, the women in this film. So we we see near the beginning that Annie, one of Laurie's friends, basically has a go at the driver who they don't know yet. Well, I think they, they think it's someone else, don't they? Yeah, they do. They think it's someone that they know. And um, she's having a go at him because he's driving really fast. And then um, she's like, speed kills, and he stops. And in that moment, I was like, she's going to die first. (laughs) (laughs) She did, didn't she? And she did, yeah. She did die first because she said that. I think he then marked her like, right. You're done. Yep. (laughs) That's it. But what do you think of the... Dialogue, because I know Deborah Hill, the producer, she contributed to the script and she brought her own experiences as a babysitter when she was a teenager mm. into these female characters. And I don't know if, if, if it's a generational thing, but I thought the dialogue was a bit off in terms of how, how the characters were communicating. I don't know. I thought it was um, just a realistic kind of everyday conversation between them. Um, it wasn't anything like set up no which we see in a lot of films i think <laughs> i know obviously it is a script but it's very scripted hmm. you can tell that it's not naturally and um not a natural flow and this one just it just flowed but in terms of the banter between the girls when you was a teenager was it like hey so and so liked you and i told told them that you were interested in him was that, was I didn't really have that kind of relationship <laughs> with, with girls, to be honest. Um, no, like I had my girlmates and I wasn't really interested in boys until like sixth form, so... Okay. <laughs> Would you be considered a late bloomer? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay then. James's face just then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's, um, there's another bit where... Laurie is, she's in the cupboard and she sticks in with the sharp end of a coat hanger. Now that is inventive. I thought that was quite good. Like, what have I got around me to to fight well, you're des- this guy that's coming at me? Well, it's like they do those stupid little memes on social media. It's like, you're in a zombie apocalypse and the, your first weapon is what you got to the right of you. That's basically what she has to deal with. She's like, she's desperately trying to survive. She's backed into a corner and all she's got is coat hangers to work with. Yeah. What's beside me? A cushion. Yes. A sock. (laughs) Or I'm I'm sitting on a wooden chair. I can use that. Hmm. Yeah? 
<laughs> and yeah, so yeah, so she's she's stabbed him with the coat hanger. Then um, he drops his knife. So then she's she just uses that opportunity. Um, but it's all in a realistic way. There's no dramatic, unrealistic fight scene. It's all kind of it's within her range, and it's feasible. Yeah. And but in- then, like, why doesn't he just die? Well, she stabbed him loads of times, and then Doctor Loomis actually comes along, doesn't he? He shoots him loads. Yeah. <laughs> he falls Fight. off the balcony. Yeah. Well, he's the bo- he's the bogeyman, the bogeyman, the bogeyman. How does he survive that? Well, there's an interesting point about <laughs> Michael. There's a point where he's attacking Laurie, and she's desperately clutching at his mask and pulls it off, and he has to stop. To put it back on. Mm. Like, the mask is his face. He isn't anybody underneath it. Because Michael could be anyone under that mask. He could be someone living two doors down from you and you would never know. He is that faceless evil we fear. And the mask remains effective because it's the whole uncanny valley. The uncomfortable emotional response we all feel when we encounter an entity that is almost, but not entirely human in appearance, like... I don't know, a mannequin, mm. sex though, I don't know. I, sorry, I have a point as well about this mask. It's almost like we're being shown that Myers doesn't have any emotions to express, well, it's that, do you think? It's that bleached white complexion, the emotionless, frozen expression and those empty black eyes. He's like this empty vessel which has just been filled up with evil and that's mm. all that's left. We're never given any plausible explanation behind his actions. Not just his need to kill, but the way he stops to admire his handiwork mm. or how he playfully dresses up as a ghost <laughs> yeah. or places his sister's gravestone behind Annie's body. So weird, yeah. Nothing about Michael makes sense. You can't just categorise him as a psychopathic masked killer. He's superhumanly strong. He vanishes in a blink of an eye. Mm. He can withstand tremendous damage and survive being fatally wounded. He also knows how to drive somehow. <laughs> but whilst the rest of the film is grounded in reality, Michael borders on the fringes of implausibility. But he is a reminder evil is always lurking around every corner, in the shadows, just out of sight. In the darkness. So it's it's quite unnerving when he appears and disappears. You just don't know when he's going to attack. And it made me tense, like, pretty much the whole way through. I wasn't scared, but, yeah, I'm just, like, sitting on the edge of my seat because I just don't know when he's going to pop out. <laughs> so what is your final verdict? I would say Sam not scared, but I would actually recommend watching this one. If you haven't already, or even if you have, give it another watch with the lights off for maximum thrill. Um, Although that's not what we did. James nicely kept the lights on for me because I would have been really scared. Although maybe that was, that's part of the point. Now when do we get to the point where I can watch these films with the lights off? (laughs) Maybe episode 50. (laughs) Well... On that bombshell, that concludes part one of our Halloween retrospective. Next week, we'll be catching up with Laurie 40 years later in Halloween 
2018. Totally. Totally. I'm James. And I'm Sam. And this was Scare and Sam. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Scare and Sam Pod. And you can contact us at scaringsampod at gmail.com. Stay, Stay safe, safe out, out there tonight. tonight. Woohoo! Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo.